this is why the Confessions is ever ancient, ever new, you might say, because I think the dynamic is immediately recognizable. It's so familiar. <laughs> Augustine tells the story of throwing himself away. What he's thinking of primarily is, how do I get ahead? How do I get to a prestigious position? And what he says is, look, I finally realized, like, I threw myself away for nothing, because that prestige is absolutely nothing in the end. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Dauphiné, and today I am uh, thrilled to be joined uh, by one of my old professors, uh, Dr. John Cavadini, uh, the director of the Church Life Institute at uh, University of Notre Dame. Uh, and today we thought we would kind of shift gears a little bit, and instead of having a professor to talk about his book, uh, we decided we'd talk about the book, one of the great books of the Catholic tradition and really one of the great books of the Western intellectual tradition, Augustine's The Confessions. Uh, so, John, welcome to the show. Thank you for welcoming me. I'm glad to be here. Well, we're so glad you're here. And, uh, you know, I'm reminded uh, C.S. Lewis in his uh, introduction to Athanasius is on the Incarnation, uh, which sometimes gets reprinted as just on the reading of old books. Um, but he says that basically old books are helpful to read alongside of new books because new books, you never know whether or not they've been tested. Um, but old books, in a way, have been tested and tried uh, and found to be wise and worth reading. And so he actually suggests that after every new book, we should read an old book. Um, but thankfully, he understands that this is often hard for us. So he says, well, at least try to read one old book for every three new books. <laughs> uh, so since we do talk a lot about a, a lot of new books on our uh, podcast show, uh, I decided that it'd be fun to talk about the confessions and try to follow Lewis's suggestion and say, what would it mean to read an old book? And so maybe I'd just love to kind of begin with that basic question. You know, why should we today, right, you know, go, uh, go back and read an old book like Augustine's Confessions? Yeah, that was a good question. I think, you know, Augustine has this phrase very memorable in the Confessions when he talks about um, God as, as a beauty ever ancient, ever new. And it's kind of like, that's the Confessions. Um, it's ever ancient. It is an old book. But mm -hmm. somehow it's got the knack of being ever new. Somehow you've, you, you hear a voice, you're reading and you hear a voice that sounds contemporary. It sounds as though it was written, mm -hmm. you know, two years ago. Of course, it wasn't. It was written in, you know, the fourth century. Yeah. But, um, but it still speaks to us and in a lively way that still provokes conversions. Wow. That's, uh, it, is, it is interesting because there's something about the confessions that's really right, his own story, mm -hmm. uh, his story growing up. Uh, being educated in a society, a kind of late Roman society mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the fourth century, and in a way, a society that's somewhat confused about its own identity. Is it Roman? Is it Christian? What's going on within that time? Um, Augustine deals with what's the purpose of education? You know, like, why is he studying? What's it all for? He deals with kind of a pluralistic culture with many religions, like he experiments with, right, he becomes a follower of the Manichees for nine years before he becomes, uh, comes to the Catholic Church. Uh, so, right, there are all these different themes. He talks a lot about friendships, right? Uh, I love the fact that he talks about the importance of shows and dramas and theaters. And here we are today where what do people love to do? Binge watch shows and dramas and all these different things. And uh, there's so much in a way that we can connect with in, in Augustine uh, that really helps us. Uh, and, and I think you're right, has that certain sense, right? It is, you know, a beauty ever ancient, ever new. So what are some themes in a way that, you know, when you've, you've taught the Augustine, you've taught Augustine's confessions for what, 30 years now or more, what, what are some things you like to start with to help students or listeners kind of connect with this old book? Yeah, sure. Um, there's a lot of different ways of starting, but I suppose it's like Maria von Trapp said, you know, let's start at the very beginning. It's the very <laughs> best place to start. Um, so if you think of the very beginning of the confession, it starts like, like out like this. You are great, O Lord, and worthy of praise, greatly worthy of praise. And so that makes you start thinking, well, how God is great. What does that mean? And what kind of praise could be adequate to that greatness? 
And I think that in some ways the whole Confessions is about that. What kind of praise could be adequate to that greatness? Mm-hmm. And I guess you could say, well, maybe a typical, maybe academic way of approaching this um, might be, well, I'm going to write a treatise about God's greatness. And, you know, God is like being itself. And God is like a greater than which none can be conceived. And, and God is um, that being which is always everywhere present. How's that? <laughs> and Augustine actually says that in the beginning of the Confessions. And he's almost like threatening to write like a treatise. Mm-hmm. The trouble is something that's always everywhere at the same time Fine, but it doesn't really like get to me, sort of. <laughs> I mean, it's true. And you are praising God by calling God that. Um, but on the other hand, instead of asking just then, what is God, which Augustine asks, he then goes on to say, well, what are you to me? Like, hmm. not just what are you, but what are you to me? That cuts closer to the bone, because then you have to start talking about you did this for me. I threw my whole life away, actually, completely and for nothing. Mm-hmm. And you gave it back. Mm-hmm. And now I want to tell that story and I want to say thank you. That's praise. Because the other thing can easily be co-opted. I'm a smart professor. I'm writing about God. Look how smart I am. I know that he's something that's always everywhere present. I know that he's being itself. Hooray for me. Ooh, sorry. It's uh-huh. supposed to be for God. But... Um, but the other one is a lot harder to co-opt. Like, I threw myself away. That you gave me, I just threw it away. And somehow, and for some reason, you gave it back to me. Yeah. So Augustine begins uh, with that famous line as well, right? Our hearts are restless yeah. <laughs> until they rest in you. Um, for you have right created us for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do, how do you maybe connect that to this idea that um, Augustine discovers in a way that he had kind of thrown himself away. Yeah, you know, it's interesting to think about that because how do you tell the story of throwing yourself away? Um, because if you, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting narrative problem because if you can tell a story of how you did it, it makes it seem rational, right? It makes mm. it seem like there's a reason. You threw yourself away for a reason. It's really hard to tell a story in which which the main thing you're talking about is completely irrational. Um, because then it's something that really can't be held together in a story. So mm-hmm. how do you do that? And I think Augustine's solution really is to what? It's the idea of confession. Like, I threw myself away, and now that you've given myself back to me, like, as I'm thanking you, I can recall those steps as a way of thanking you. But in and of itself, there's no there there. Like, there wasn't any there there. I just mm-hmm. irrationally was addicted to my own destruction. Um, and if you weren't there, I wouldn't be here now. I wouldn't have gotten myself back. I wouldn't be writing this. So it's actually um, a testimony to God's grace, which is what finally holds his life together as he looks back on it. Wow. Uh, there's this idea that uh, some people have noticed that in Augustine, we often think of kind of sin as like pleasing ourselves, mm-hmm. um, as though sin is a, a love of self. And, and in some ways, maybe we, you know, we can love ourselves in disordered ways. Um, but one of the things I think that you begin to see when you read Augustine's Confessions is he looks back and he kind of sees in a way that his his sins and his mistakes and his rebellion and his were were actually kind of a self hatred mm-hmm. um, that all the while he was kind of in this love hate relationship with himself, and at least when I teach the confessions, I find that uh, students today and our culture today may not really resonate immediately with sin because it's kind of a language that people aren't completely used to. But if you speak about the language of self-hatred, that there's something about ourselves that as we're kind of born into this world and born into a culture, that we somehow become more filled with a distaste, perhaps even a disgust with ourselves and with others, that that's something that people can connect with uh, and that that's somehow what what happens in the confessions is 
in a strange way, he learns to stop loving himself and begins to learn God, learn to love God more. But in another way, you almost might say that he begins to stop hating himself and he begins to start loving himself as a child of God. Yeah, he's got this very famous expression in, um, in book two um, in the Latin. It's um, amavi pirire. It's very hard to translate it in English. Um, I always in love with perishing. Like I always in love with my own destruction. Mm-hmm. And that's... Um, you want to say, what? What are you talking about? It's, it's a very ironic phrase, right? But he's saying, I was addicted to my own destruction. And we can relate to addiction. Like addiction, um, di- addictive behaviors are, are self-destructive behaviors that we're somehow deeply attached to. And so how do you, how do you break the attachment? Um, I know there are medical conditions of addiction. I'm not talking about a medical condition, but I'm talking yeah. about a... A, um, an overall like approach to life. And so like a, all these forms of addictic behavior are forms of self-hatred. Um, and how do you break the cycle of hating yourself? Well, the only way to break the cycle of hating yourself is somebody has to break it for you. Somebody has to break into it and say, you know, I love you. <laughs> and um, maybe you can rest in that love for a minute and take a little vacation from hating yourself. And, you know, by, by little by little, that vacation gets longer and longer. But Augustine's insight, I think a crucial insight is you can't, you have to have something to cling to. It's kind of like nicotine gum. Like if you're trying to give up smoking, like nicotine gum gives you something to like chew on or hold on to. And what's that for Augustine? It's the word incarnate. It's Jesus Christ you know, who bent down and became made what what's what we seem to be what we think we're hating which is god and his prestige and he he became little for us and there's a sweetness to it and that so nourishes the soul that somebody laid down at my feet who was god in order to love me and that sweetness when you cling to it it starts dissolving the self-hatred and the addiction and the um the un the way in which we are addicted to all this self-destructive behavior. And you start like, okay, oh, time out. I'm going to take a little vacation. And the vacation gets to be more than of the way of life, though it takes the whole life to make this transition. Mm-hmm. So this idea that we're, we're somewhat, we're trapped in this pattern of self-destructive behavior. Uh, I think Augustine will describe it almost as a scattering of ourself. We kind of lose ourselves in this dispersive love. We we love destructive things and therefore uh, get stuck in this. And and in a way, it's very hard for us to get out of this. Uh, and it's the Augustine in a way discovers that it's the incarnation itself. Somehow, God becoming flesh in Jesus Christ, becoming an infant, uh, that how is it that that, how is it that like the incarnation itself for Augustine becomes the way out of this path? Well, I, I mean, maybe I'll put it this way because it's not a thought, right? It's not like a concept. It's not, it's, it's not the concept that God became flesh even. It's that he actually did, and you can actually touch him. You can find him. It's something concrete. You can find him eucharistically. That's him who mm-hmm. bent down. And so it's, it's like flesh, right? Flesh is something you can touch. It's not a concept. And you want to know that you and all your flesh and everything else are loved, not just a thought about you. Instead, it's actually somebody who... Mm-hmm had flesh like this, actually took this flesh on, which is my flesh, and bent down and reached out his hand. And I can get, I can grasp that hand in the Eucharist. And insofar as I do that, that's like, I don't mean to be irreverent, but that's kind of like nicotine gum. <laughs> it's like the thing, it's so sweet. And you, 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 you're sort of like tricked into it. Like, I don't want to let go now. Like, I love you. And I didn't before, but now you sort of tricked me into it. And now I'm, I'm willing to, so little by little, like, let you heal me. Um, and let all of these, what, what, what is irrational self-destruction and self-hatred go away. Like, obsessive focus on career to the point where if I don't succeed you know, like Augustine tells the story, um, if I don't succeed to the highest whatever level people think I should, then I'm worthless. 
Um, really, you're worthless? Well, I died on a cross. Like, how about that for like a career? Um, <laughs> and, it was, and basically, um, I did it because I love you. And not just humanity, but you. And here's my flesh. You can have it. And it's like a kiss almost. Um, it's like an intimate exchange. And that's why we have the spousal language for the church and for the Eucharist. Um, and you can persist a long time on that kiss or that touch, mm -hmm. however you want to put it. It's not a concept. Mm -hmm. So Christ in becoming incarnate and dying on the cross shows in a way the path of humility rooted in love. Right. Right. It, it, and I think Augustine will say uh, in book seven, where he talks about how the uh, he learned from the Platonists, uh, right, that God was immaterial, that he's sheer being, uh, that he's in a way the homeland that we seek. But he saw that in Jesus Christ, that was the way home, right, that uh, something about our humility, the humility of Christ becomes our way uh, home uh, that we can follow. Uh, so, you know, that, that sense of humility, I think, also raises the question a little bit of what's his diagnosis of pride? Uh, we tend to think of, you know, Augustine seems to suggest in a way that one of our difficulties in learning to love God and love ourselves properly is some understanding, right, of pride, that there's a kind of infection uh, that we have, uh, that hu the humility of Christ heals, could you say a little bit more about pride at Augustine? Pride, pride is the desire to replace God with yourself, okay, to put it bluntly. But that doesn't actually help us understand what it is existentially. That's blunt. Yeah. That's blunt. Right. Um, I, we, we never probably really say that. I want, to, <laughs> I want to replace God with me. Of course nobody says that because it's stupid, but and you would be mocked. But the thing is, the actual deep attitude, um, like go back to the Platonists and— how you, you pointed out, Augustine says, you know, they, they see the goal, maybe, but they don't have the way to get there. Mm -hmm. Like, all right, I don't know. Think about the planet Neptune. Like, I can see Neptune, kind of. like So I can see it. It's kind of blue. Mm -hmm. um, if I have a telescope. It doesn't really tell me much about the planet Neptune. And, you know, it's, I don't know how many millions of miles of empty space away. I don't have any way of getting there. However, I can brag that I can see it, right? <laughs> I can see Neptune. Um, and also, in a sense... A pride is not just that I can brag that I can see it, that I can see God in some way, even though from afar, but it's also that I've got a stake in that distance. I've got, it's not just neutral, that there is a distance from afar. I have a stake in holding God afar because mm. my goal is to get there myself. Like I am going to, by my philosophical endeavor and my smartness and my brilliance and my transcendent ability to imagine something that's always everywhere whole, um, I'm going to get there myself. That's pride because if you can get to God yourself without God's help, then you are God. Mm -hmm. So, but the, the humility comes when you, when you realize, wait a minute, I, I don't have to like stop that. Like Neptune came to me, like mm -hmm. it's here. And all of a sudden now that it's close up, first of all, I can, I can receive him. I don't like, he did it for me. And it's okay. Like, I'm my worth as a human being is not that I can master God. Like, that's not my worth. My worth is that He loves me and He came to me so I can say, thank you. Okay. I can receive that. But also, that's, that's giving up the position that somehow I'm going to master God, that He's going to become a, like a subject that I've mastered. And also, now that He's close up, I can see stuff that I couldn't see when it was 300 whatever million miles away, I don't know what it is, Neptune, but like I can see that God is love. Like there's no way I could see that from so far away. Mm -hmm. um, and now that he's come close, that very motion and that very closest to me makes me see something I could never have seen before as a Platonist, just reasoning my way. Um, and you know what? I didn't want to see it because I don't want to know. I want to be the guy who got there. Like, the, first, the man on the moon. No, I want to be the. So the. But if I'm if I'm willing to receive the humility of the word who comes to me, I can all of a sudden see a lot more about the the destination 
than I could mm -hmm. ever have on my own. Wow. So that, that theme of really somehow like that surrender of our recognizing that all of our efforts on our own would never get us right kind of to the, no matter how much we would accomplish, we would still, so to speak, be proud that I accomplished it. Exactly. And therefore the ego would grow and the ego would then continue me in a state of distance from God. Right. And think and so about it's that union. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O Lord, for you have created us for yourself, which requires in a way us to lay down our ego. But we can't do that until Christ does it for us. Yeah. And there's like a moment of like the, the, the sort of leap there. There's a moment of trust. Like he comes to you. He comes in the most persuasive way possible. He empties himself. He's, He's kind of, a, it's his blood after all he's giving to you. And so the moment of faith, I guess, is this moment of, thank you. Like, I believe you. Like, you, yeah. and he is the only one who won't ever let you down. Like, mm -hmm. you don't put that faith in any human being besides him. But I mean, um, and that that's what's healing finally to, the, like, to enter into that trust. You're giving yourself to someone you could say completely, knowing that he will never turn you down, believing that he will never turn you down, and living your life on the basis of that trust, right? Um, and so the whole idea is that that trust gets you somewhere. That trust is enriching. Your life will be full because of that. Um, but you have to, it is that leap, right? It's Faith is always faith. It's never. It's never something that could be, you know, it's like like a mathematical insight proven in that clear and distinct you know, Cartesian way. And if it were that, it wouldn't be healing. Yeah. And with, with, within that, it, you, can, you can kind of understand why I think we would often call Augustine, right, the doctor of grace. Mm -hmm. uh, the doctor of grace, God's free gift of salvation that really becomes the necessary way of overcoming our pride uh, reminds me of Augustine's uh, confessions kind of sets in play an eventual debate between Augustine and Pelagius and the Pelagian controversy. But in part, Pelagianism, you know, and for those who haven't heard, right, it's that basic idea that uh, we could somehow on our own respond to God's grace. And one of the things Augustine always emphasizes is that we need healing. It's all gift, so to speak. Because part of our own illness is that we think we can do it on our own. Uh, and if that were necessary, if we could, then Jesus didn't have to die on the cross, as he puts it. Right. Um, and that we also yeah. think, and even a Pelagian position would be that we think we merit God's grace. Like, hey, I deserve it. Like, mm -hmm. I'm good enough. I, I made an act of faith, and that act of faith was good enough on my own recognizance to merit something called grace. And that's completely opposite to the idea of grace because grace is unmerited. It's free. Yeah. That's exactly it. And that's why it's so beautiful because it's just, it's just given and you can get to stop trying to replace it. Stop trying to be grace. Stop trying to do it and just receive it and say, thank you. And that, that's what fills your life and the restlessness that we all feel. Yeah. And that really seems to be, that's what Augustine's, this whole confessions is a testimony to God's grace in his life, uh, and and in a way in the life that then he discovers his own meaning, uh, right? Is baptized. He professes the faith, the creed. He goes to the Eucharist, and then he even sees in Scripture this whole communication. So we're going to take a break in a minute. Uh, but what I'd I'd love when we return, uh, maybe if you could think a little bit about uh, what are you know for Augustine it was kind of maybe a success in law. And as a uh, a speaker, an orator, uh, and also maybe the promise of power and intelligence offered by the Platonists uh, that he saw in his day were things that he had to, in a way, renounce. Are there, you know, what are the things maybe that you see in our own contemporary culture? Um, maybe Platonism, right, isn't the overwhelming sense of human achievement uh, that it was for Augustine. Um, but maybe what are what are contemporary things? So we'll return to that uh, in a minute after our break. Okay, thank you. 
You're listening to The Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. If you'd like to support our mission, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining our Annunciation Circle, a monthly giving program aimed at supporting our staff, faculty, and Catholic faith formation. You can visit us at avemaria.edu to learn more. Thank you for your continued support, and now, let's get back to the show. So, John, you've been talking a lot about how um, Augustine uh, saw, in a way, this uh, the influence of pride both in himself, uh, this desire to kind of try to replace God with himself, and also kind of in his society, this attempt to focus not on the truth of the matter or the praise of God, um, but instead somehow, right, uh, our own power, our own prestige. You were talking a little bit about how you saw that in Augustine's times. What are some examples maybe in our own culture where you see, uh, you know, um, us kind of imitating that kind of pathology that Augustine sees in ourselves and in his culture? Yeah, I think in some ways this is why the Confessions is ever ancient, ever new, you might say, because I think the dynamic is immediately recognizable. It's so familiar. Um, (laughs) Yes. If you think of what that dynamic is, Augustine tells the story, basically, of um, him throwing himself away. What did he, I mean, what did he throw himself away for? A lot of times you get this sort of stereotyped understanding of the Confessions as Augustine's a great sexual sinner. Um, That sort of narrative overlooks the larger story that he tells. Yeah, he talks about sexual infidelity and, and promiscuity, but he talks about it as sort of like in the context of this larger endeavor that he had, because getting married properly would have gotten would have been in the way of his career. Um, so what, what, he's, what, what he's thinking of primarily is how do I get ahead? How do I get to a prestigious position? How do I get mm-hmm. to a chaired professorship? And guess what? He got to one, an imperially, mm-hmm. that is, funded by the emperor, chaired professor. And so he was, and he talks about how once he had this position, you know, his job was to praise the emperor, whether it was true or not. So mm-hmm. the whole idea is he was seeking for something super prestigious, regardless of truth. And so that the this is what pride is, right? Prestige, the way in which something is focused on you and praise of you, um, replaces God's values. God's value is truth. Um, and what 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 he says is, look, I, that's what I I I finally realized. Like I threw myself away for nothing because that prestige is absolutely nothing in the end. And so. Where do we find that now? Well, we find the same attraction to prestige and to try to, try to you know, fashion, you could say careers, the temptation is because they're prestigious and not so much because we're doing something intrinsically valuable or we're doing something intrinsically valuable, but we're doing it riding on the prestige. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, science today is probably the most prestigious cultural endeavor that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't worry, I'm not talking against science. I love science. Um, I was a biology major, by the way, in mm-hmm. college. But so a, I was an engineering major, by the way. So well, how's that? <laughs> but I have uh, two sci- uh, science engineer come theologians. But if you, but if you as a scientist, mm-hmm. rely on the prestige of science to start making it so people listen to you when you talk about things that aren't scientific, for example, the existence of God, that's mm-hmm. not an issue that science can address or the validity of the Bible or what the Bible even is as some of the so-called newer atheists do. They mm-hmm. end up making it so that they ride on the prestige of, of, um, of science, the cultural prestige of science to fold into it all kinds of other claims that have nothing to do with science that science can't speak to. And so at a certain point that starts to look like not I don't want to. I don't want to make a moral judgment about anyone. People, people go down different paths for whatever, but reason. But at a certain point, it starts to look like you are um, trading in either knowingly or by negligence prestige for truth. That you've you've traded in the prestige of being a prestigious scientist without taking the time to actually examine 
the philosophical and theological issues that don't belong to science, but pronounce on them anyway. Sure. Yeah, that's a huge, uh, I think people can be an expert in one field and then they want to speak on everything. Um, Probably see that today sometimes in our celebrity culture as well. Um, You know, it's interesting when we think about this, I think there's another layer almost of say, sometimes we we look to science to solve problems that science can't solve. And, you know, there's, in a way, you know, death remains hard. Science really can't outsmart death. We, we can heal a few things and it's amazing that we can do it. We can make life sometimes more comfortable for the disabled. We can do all sorts of things that are kind of wonderful. But at the end of the day, right, you know, um, death and in a way our own propensity to wickedness cannot be overcome. Uh, and I think that's in a way connected to this Augustinian insight of pride that uh, when we, we have a natural desire to think we can handle this as a society, we are either as the Roman Empire, right, the greatest empire almost ever, we can solve all the problems or as kind of, you know, the modern West, we can solve all the problems uh, instead of recognizing that, no, we can do certain things that are good, but the fundamental happiness and peace we seek is something that actually we cannot achieve. We kind of have to get down on our knees and ask for God's help. And I think in a way that's hard. I think people expect in a way politics to bring about perfect justice. We expect science to, right, you know, cure cancer, to do all of these things that in a way can be very good and noble endeavors. And yet if they go beyond uh, a certain limit, uh, they can also become destructive. Uh, reminded of uh, Pope Benedict in his uh, Space Salvi on By Hope We Are Saved, uh, developed this idea, right, that politics and science have almost become a new religion that promise us no longer heaven in heaven, but now promises heaven on earth. Uh, and he actually says we should be cautious of any you know, politics or science that claim that they can bring about a new paradise. Um, because it's in a certain sense, it's above our pay grade. <laughs> you know, human beings in a way cannot achieve that. And I, and I think it's a hard thing to say because when we say that, it sounds like we're being pessimistic or we're not trying to do all we can to have as much justice as we can or as much, you know, health and safety as we can. You know, how do you think we can kind of articulate these limits um, while, you know, uh, maybe without falling into the caricature of, kind of quietism. Yeah, uh, well, it's a serious issue. And it's certainly, if you, if you think about it, um, I take the temptation to think that by science, we can make ourselves immortal. Now, that is not something that I think is off the table in a lot of people's minds. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. That is, science will eventually make it so aging is basically a thing of the past. Um, and so also... <laughs> whatever kinds of technologies we can put in place to make that happen. But think about what's happening. Eventually you'll come to a point, first of all, where, you know, the, where the being that you are improving is in some sense, transhuman is beyond the human. You've, you've put in so many like gene splices or mechanical things mm-hmm. that is it still the human being um, or is it a transhuman? Are we kind of creating a Frankenstein sort of creature? But even almost worse than that, it seems to me, is that this is a highly elitist enterprise. Like, how many mm-hmm. people are going to be actually given this kind of therapy that will make mm-hmm. them immortal? Billionaires, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but the vast mass of the world's poor, like, they're going to be as mortal as ever. And now the divide between, you know, the rich and the poor will be the divide between the quasi-immortal and those who are mortal just like yeah. before. So that's the mark of the world addicted to sin and addicted to pride because the illusion is you're improving humanity, which you're actually improving a small elite in power of humanity. And yeah. unlike the incarnation, right, where Paul says, and Augustine always loved this verse, though he was rich for us, he became poor. Mm-hmm. So that we might be enriched. And that means everybody, yeah. right? 
Augustine talks in the City of God about the universal way of salvation because Porphyry is looking for it. But Augustine, in his own way, is saying, no, you're not. You're looking for the universal way of salvation for the elite, the smart people. Um, wow. But the universal way of salvation, the actual universal way, is for everybody, not just the smart mm-hmm. people. It's not just for the educated. It's yeah. not even for people like most people then couldn't even read. It's for them, too. And the kinds of technological projects tending towards immortality, et cetera, are never going to be for any but less than 0.001% of people in the world. Yeah, that is really one of the gifts. It's almost so part of our, it's so much a part of our culture that I think we overlook that aspect of Christianity uh, that, you know, slave and uh, free were included, man and woman were included, all these different elements, rich and poor, everyone was baptized and became equal. It's interesting in the confessions, uh, he talks about, I think, um, you know, Victorinus and of course himself who were, um, I don't know, kind of like the equivalent of maybe, you know, like Supreme Court justices, um, but they stood before the church and just said the Apostles' Creed and were baptized. Right. And then they were equal and they got away from this competitive notion of scarce earthly goods um, and to join this fellowship of equals as children of God where each shares in the good of the whole and and it's it it really is kind of I think you know in, in, in this way you know Christianity is the first kind of completely almost you know democratic religion in in, in many ways that's really open to everyone and that is really uh, just kind of it it's it's almost like it's we're so used to it now that we forget this idea where we got the where we got the idea that each individual person is kind of worth the whole world that each person is worth the blood of Jesus Christ that each person in a way God so loved the world but God so loved right each and every one of us that this is kind of the legacy of the biblical revelation mm-hmm. and if you think about it um you know, in antiquity, the ancient practice for baptism was that you strip naked, not in front of the whole church, like it mm-hmm. was, and not in male and female. There mm-hmm. was, but still, um, yeah. the point is, you are saved as flesh, like mm-hmm. everyone else. The least common denominator, mm-hmm. in a sense, or the common denominator, is not how much money you have, or not, not not how much prestige you have, but the fact that you're human flesh. And the Lord took on flesh; He didn't <clears throat> take on prestige. He took on flesh and being baptized into his death naked it's an emphasis that it's you as a human being period and everyone as a human being period i'm not saying we should return to that practice necessarily but (laughs) it's significant in in this context i think yeah can you uh say a word for our uh listeners or viewers just how how did you get interested in studying augustine and really dedicating your life to you know learning about him and teaching you know, it's an interesting question because I, I don't have like a major conversion story to tell. Somebody once asked me, could you tell your, your conversion story? And I thought, geez, I wish I had one <laughs> in a way because it would be more interesting than what I actually am, which is as a lifelong Catholic, um, I don't know, who just sort of bumbled along. And I think I do remember even at a really early age having a kind of love for religious things. Um, I remember seeing when I was like three or four, stained glass windows in my parish church and thinking, I don't know, I wasn't thinking how beautiful they were, but somehow the fact that they were religious, not that they were just art, attracted me. So I've always had that thing. And then I I guess as you grow, you have certain moments that cause your faith to become deeper. But I don't have a, I don't have a conversion story that's at all interesting. Um, I'm kind of boring in that way. And maybe that's the way the Lord wanted it. I think probably if... If I hadn't been born a Catholic, I would have been like spent like 60,000 years or whatever, like fidgeting about it and wondering about it. And the Lord is like, John, forget it. I don't want to hear it. Just I'm just going to make you a Catholic to start out with because I just don't <laughs> want to hear all the complaining. So there it is. That's great. And then how did you move from that to uh, studying Augustine? These things are shrouded in mystery for me. I, I have mm-hmm. to say, I, I read Augustine first as a, as a junior in college, and I didn't like it at all. Like I thought... 
I remember reading Book 11 of the City of God, and where he talks about how the light, let there be light. What that means is the angels were created, created light intelligence. I mean, I thought, that's ridiculous. That can't be true. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the confessions, I was like, mm, I'm not that guy. Um, but somehow it, somehow it lodged in my imagination, like, like a virus, like a, <laughs> like a textual virus. Um, and on its own, it kind of grew. And I, like, I, I went back to it, um, somehow. And I felt this affinity that I hadn't noticed earlier. I'm, you know, I don't study Augustine because I'm interested primarily in what happened way back then. Like I study Augustine precisely for the reason we started out today, that he, he speaks to us. He speaks to me. He mm -hmm. speaks to the dilemmas I find. He speaks to a world in which there's so much evil around. I mean, so much, so much poverty, so much misery, so much just spiritual disease. And yet he, he looks right at it and doesn't like, sugarcoat it and yet mm -hmm. says the Lord has triumphed even over this and cling to the cross and you will too. I don't know. That's such a deep, deeply moving thing to me. And I'm interested in bringing that forward for people. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not interested so much in telling people what happened way back then. Yeah, that's a beautiful, it's a beautiful um, way of approaching right wisdom which is that augustine discovered certain things that are true about god and about himself through the revelation that he received through scriptures and through the church and right those things are the same things that we can make that same journey today um in the you know at ave Maria university we have uh, all our students read uh the confessions in um one of the uh theology classes and it is such a great story it's it's interesting that you know it begins kind of with infancy he begins as an infans which in latin is without speech and he in a way falls into a world of disordered speech himself and disordered society um and then he struggles to learn to find better speech and wisdom he you know, dedicates himself as a young man at a certain point to cicero's wisdom he seeks wisdom in the Manichees uh, and eventually finds that wisdom in the incarnate word. Uh, and it's this, it's this great journey and a learn about journey of learning how to speak properly, to confess the truth about himself, that I did it, right? When I sinned, it wasn't somebody else's fault. It wasn't the dark force within me as he had thought, but it was actually I who did it. In a way, there's this deep discovery of the of the eye, right? Of 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 not the um, kind of wounded ego, but the authentic self. Uh, and he learns to tell the truth about God and to kind of say thank you to God for all of these things. But so much of it comes down to this one scene in the garden, and in Book Eight. And just as one of the last things I wanted to talk about is just. Uh, right, he has a scene, um, he's struggling, right? He has a famous line, Lord, make me chase, but not yet. He, um, he knows that the faith is true, but he's not yet willing to surrender. Um, and, right, and he has this beautiful scene, right? Tole et lege, tole et lege, right? Um, take up and read, take up and read. And he picks up, right, Romans 13, I have it here. Um, you know, let us conduct ourselves becomingly as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Right, and at that moment, right, he's overcome with tears. He experiences God's grace and God's love, this release from the ego uh, and he's able to kind of see himself somehow as having a choice that is a gift of grace, right? Something that he couldn't do on his own before. Um, how, how, how do you kind of approach that beautiful scene in the garden uh, when you teach it with students? Well, I guess in the first place, that verse, from those verses from Romans, the, the like, climax of it is put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes. And that's a baptismal reference. Mm -hmm. right? um, so how, like, entrust yourself. Like, 
you're not going to be able to overcome all these things that he mentions, you know, on your own. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes. And that's what's keeping you from the conversion, right? He's, he's like the whole book eight, he's worrying that how can I, I can't do this. Like I, I'm not um, tomorrow and tomorrow I'm going to do it tomorrow. Okay. Tomorrow I'll do it or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Because he thinks, you know, in some sense, He's like addicted to the idea, I have to do it. But when yes. he opens the book, like at the voice of children playing next door or something, pick up and read, pick up and read, he all of a sudden like, it's so charming it's, and it's so small as it were that it catches his attention. And he thinks, oh, maybe that means for me to open the scripture. It's totally non-philosophical, but I don't care. I'll open the scripture. Mm-hmm. And he comes across that line, you know, make no provision for the flesh, that means, yes, um, that means stop worrying about these things that, you're, that you have to do it on your own and that it's not worth anything if you don't do it. That's your whole problem. Mm-hmm. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So let him do it. Yeah. Um, in baptism, he's going to wash all of this away. Mm-hmm. So just trust. Give yourself. And in that moment, somehow, you know, he does. He gives himself. And Augustine wants us to see all right, on the one hand, it's God's grace at work. This is God's grace finally dissolving the clot in his heart, as it were, yeah. that, that insists that he be the main actor always. But it's also you know, perfectly understandable on the horizontal plane, the vertical plane of God's grace entering his heart, but also the horizontal plane. I mean, it's a perfectly believable story. And so you, 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 have, the, you have an account of grace there, right? That's not, God isn't on the same level of cause as the horizontal level. Mm-hmm. It doesn't interrupt it. The story is perfectly understandable and satisfying without grace. But what Augustine is trying to say is, all of a sudden, in this moment, he became free. Where did that freedom come from? And grace, he's trying to say, is always associated with freedom. It's never associated with a constraint. It's always associated mm-hmm. with freedom. The moment of grace is mysterious because it's the moment of freedom. And the yeah. moment of freedom is itself mysterious. You can't find the origin of freedom. Otherwise, it wouldn't be freedom. Mm-hmm. And you can't find the origin of grace. Well, you know it's God, but you can't find the reason for it. Otherwise, it's not grace. And so he paints this picture of grace and human freedom as per- perfectly, as, as in sense, the same mystery. Um, yeah. And the same mystery of how you can be so deeply moved after having been so fixed on not letting anything in. And all of mm-hmm. a sudden, you do. Yeah, and put on the Lord Jesus, right? right. That sense of, um, right, God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, but never without us. Right. right. We, in a way, say, um, right, uh, I can't, he can. And then we say, I'll let him. Right. You know, it's like we still are active, even though we're putting on and receiving a power much greater than ourselves. Um, you know, we, we are kind of coming to the end of our show. I want to ask you just kind of three questions, three uh, quick questions that I like to ask our um, guests. And so uh, first, what's a book uh, you've been reading lately? You know what a book I've been reading lately um, actually two books. One is um, Read of God by Carol, by Carol Houselander. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a little bit of a 20th century classic on Mary. I read it a long time ago, but I picked it up again, and it really, I don't know, it speaks to me. It's very short. It's easy to read. Yeah. Um, another the, the Read of God, by the way, that has a deep theme of that, I think that sense of that self-surrender at, and kind of understanding God's work in everything. Yeah, absolutely. And I think yeah. it's, I mean, I'm always trying to, figure out how to help people recapture, you know, the mystery of Mary, which seems to have been mm-hmm. like faded or erased from, from the consciousness of a lot of Western Christians. Mm-hmm. So I would say that read of God. Um, I also read a little book by Immaculate and I'm not going to pronounce her, her name, right? She's mm-hmm. the Rwandan, you know, um, who, who told the story of our, um, our lady of Kibeho mm-hmm. um, and the devotion to our lady of sorrows. I just, that really moved me too. Oh. So I just finished reading that and I picked up Read of God. I don't know if those are Great. interesting to readers, but there they are. Well, well, that's beautiful. Um, uh, secondly, what's a daily practice you have that helps you to find meaning and purpose and draw closer to God? Uh, yeah. Um, well, there's you know, so a, a number. Of, I mean, the main one is like, you know, daily mass. If I can, I'll do it. 
that's like if you receive Holy Communion, it's the best thing that can happen to you. <laughs> There's nothing better than that. Mm -hmm. And it just makes your whole day and your whole week and your whole life. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's uh, so well put. Um, last question. What's uh, part of the goal of the show, right, is that theology matters. Ideas about God matter. Um, what's a false idea you held about God? Um, and in a way, how did you, how did discovering the truth um, help you or, you know, a better understanding of God help you uh, live better? You know, in some ways, I don't think we ever entirely put aside these unhelpful views of God. They're deeply, they're deeply set into our hearts and you kind of live a life of overcoming them, you might say. I guess if I had to name one, it would be God as judge. Not that I don't believe that God is, isn't judge. I do. But if you're too fixated on God as judging you, you can't ever do anything. You're just always stuck and second-guessing yourself, mm -hmm. and you don't have any confidence. Um, but that's not, it's not an easy thing to just let go of, which is why something like going to daily Mass even if you don't think you're worthy, it it begins to help you grow up, yeah. help you grow out of that. It's fascinating, as 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 you know, in the early church, in the catacombs, there's often the image of uh, Jesus as the good shepherd. It's Christ with the shepherd, uh, with the sheep on his um, shoulders, carrying it. And and I think that that for me, at least, I know is a, a great way forward. I don't understand everything completely. But when I think about Christ as, right, the Lord is my shepherd, Christ is my shepherd, um, there is a way that, yes, if, if I'm going to somehow make it home, it's on his shoulders. <laughs> but on the other hand, I can then trust in him. Uh, so thank you so much for being with us on the show. Uh, for anyone who's interested in reading uh, the confessions and picking it up and reading it, uh, as Augustine did, is there any uh, final word that you'd like to suggest? Any final word? Um, I don't know. It's an engaging story, I think. Okay. And I think that's why it's ever ancient, ever new, because you can pick it up and read it as a story Yeah, and you can read it again. Knowing the ending of it doesn't make it so you don't, you don't want to read it again. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I've so many, I've encountered so many students, graduate students, undergraduate students, especially graduate students who decided they're going to become Catholic because they read this book. Um, the book, wow. there isn't any other book about which I hear that more. Put it that way. Wow. Well, that's that's quite a recommendation. Uh, so thank you very much, uh, Dr. Cavadini, for being on our show. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on the Catholic Theology Show.